Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Nas is another land defender I interviewed in the Ferry Creek series. He is 24 years old, a two-spirit warrior and a native youth leader. This interview adds depth to the one I had with Marmars in addressing the difficulties native youth experience at the Ferry Creek blockade. Nas speaks openly about sexual abuse, the division in the native community, and the difficulty of coming together for a common purpose. Are you from Pachidat? Uh, no, I'm from Heshkwit, which is one of the 15-plus Nuchalnath nations. Um, the Nuchalnath people are a number of nations all along the west coast of Vancouver Island, all the way down to uh, the Macaw people in Washington State. So um, I believe that Pachidat are included in the Nuchalnath as well. Okay. Yeah. And are you living nearby Ferry Creek? How Ferry Creek is connected to you? Um, I grew up on Vancouver Island uh, in Euclid, and um, Ferry Creek ended up being connected to me through a series of acquaintances that ended up being really, really close friends. Um, but we were, uh, we met each other through like the indigenous community, as well as just like uh, working on the land and doing like ecotourism. Um, so that's how I kind of met the people that ended up bringing me into the camps in the first place. So when you arrived there, it was already happening. Yeah, uh, the first time I went was in May. So it was before enforcement. Mm. Yeah. And how it was for you as a native person to realize about the blockade happening by RFS? Well, it wasn't so much about like the blockade as a whole for me when I first went out there. I went out and I, I met a, a number of queer indigenous youth um, and I found like this sense of community that I hadn't had before. Um, I've always been fairly disconnected from culture um, and from like other indigenous or First Nations people my own age. Um, so the first time I went out there and I met this big group of you know people that were just like me and literally spoke my language um, it was really amazing to just like even have the option of like, you know, cruising with them and being able to be at a camp and maintain a camp with my people in that way was like just such a special experience and such a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, and yeah, later on, um, getting more into the movement, getting more involved, uh, I think that the main underlying thing was always that sense of community. Um, and I think that 
there is a danger uh, to kind of be susceptible to that disconnect when you go out there. And there's a lot of people that like to try to focus on, you know, what we're doing for the trees and saying that we're out here for the trees. Um, but ultimately, I think that it's a lot deeper than that. And if you're out there just for the trees, you miss out on a lot of like the potential for these kinds of land defense movements. Say more because I think that um, the conflict lies between people that wants to protect the forest for the people or the people that want to protect the forest for the trees. And this is where you're not in alignment with each other. In my opinion, where the disconnect comes from in regards to coming to these sorts of land defense movements, any land defense movement, and uh, having this, the notion that you're just there to protect the old growth or you're just there to protect the waterways. Um, there is no land defense like without indigenous roots because us as indigenous people are protecting the land in ways that we have been doing for tens of thousands of years. Um, it is our culture to have responsibility to the land and protect it and, and make sure that it is healing um, in the ways that we all need it to heal. Um, so I think that when we say we're here, here for the trees and we need to focus on the trees. Um, in a way, it is a colonial mindset in its own way. Um, because once you save the trees, then what? Who, who is in control of the trees after that? After you protect these little sections of old growth, what happens to them if they are still owned legally um, you know or by the queen or whatever that land is not protected it is simply that, that process yeah that process of of resource extraction is just being put off so ultimately there is no land defense without land back because the only way to truly ensure that these lands and these resources are going to be protected in a sustained way that is going to eventually enable us to like have some level of ab abundance similar to what we once had, um, that land has to go back to the original stewards and the people that are going to hold ancestral responsibility to the care of that land and there's always this talk of like well if we give the land back to the indigenous people there's still going to be indigenous people taking advantage of resource extraction um or you know using it for their own personal gain or whatever and in regards to comments like that it's like so what let them because that's part of the issue is this mindset that if anyone besides the people that have been profiting since the beginning of this 
if anyone other than them starts to profit, there's going to be some kind of imbalance. But there is an imbalance, and that's the issue. You know, it's like when people talk about giving anything back to Indigenous people, it's like, well, how are we going to do that? You know, it'll be too, too crazy, too hectic, too chaotic. It's like, that's exactly what happened. You're afraid of change because you think that change will come and things will be different and things will be bad. But change did come and things were different and things are bad. So we need to change back. (laughs) So I think that that's the biggest disconnect when we talk about land defense and it being just for the trees or just for the resources or whatever, there is no land defense without returning that land to the indigenous peoples, just just to remove it from the board in regards to this like capitalist resource extraction, like profit game that we're all stuck playing. (laughs) Okay, I like it. So this movement, specific movement, when they blockade, they got deferral for two years. Is it a success or it's just more of the same? So it gives you some air to decide what to do. Okay. How do you see that? And, and is it just part of the same thing? This is what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, the deferral, I think that kind of the idea with the deferral is to say, okay, we're, we're hearing you, we're not going to log these areas until this date because, you know, the idea is that they are trying to put into action these real changes in the way that we log, right? But we've been saying that kind of stuff for years and every deferral is just, putting it off longer and longer when ultimately it's too little too late already. Um, And the deferrals that have been put in um, over the past year have done a lot to sway the public into thinking that we're winning something, that we're we're making headway. Um, And I remember when one of the earlier deferrals came out, Um, talking to other people that weren't a part of the blockade saying why are you guys still out there like they they put the deferral in didn't you guys get what you wanted but that deferral wasn't even including any of the old growth or any of the forests that we were at that time actively blockading within Um, so for us to remove ourselves at that time and allow them to put this deferral into place, they would have logged way past where we were protecting up to these little protected areas. Um, And I think that it is ultimately just something to distract the public, distract people that don't really know what's going on and make people feel better. You know, the people that don't really care what's going on. Um, when it's like, it's a much larger issue than I think people realize, uh, even in regards to like 
like old growth logging is its own thing um, and it has impact in regards to climate change and weather patterns and you know just everything that we are currently dealing with in regards to climate crisis and crazy crap going on in the country um but winter and summer and fall all year long yeah totally (laughs) Um, but like there's a lot there's a much deeper connection um to old growth for indigenous peoples um because those old growth trees are some of the only things still standing on this continent that we still have a real ancestral connection to you know like we don't have huge stone structures we don't have totem poles that were left standing um, or preserved or village sites that were allowed to be preserved like so much of our history has been taken from us and when it comes to old growth cedars the spiritual connection and the spiritual meaning that those trees have to us um, culturally ancestrally in so many different ways cutting down those forests is like burning down cathedrals you know and we can't rebuild those forests no we will not see those trees in our lifetimes in several generations and there are so many people now that don't have the opportunity to actually experience what it's like being in those forests being inside one of those trees like it's a living breathing being it's standing and growing and it has been doing so for thousands of years and you can step inside of it and like feel the air and the energy moving up the trunk of these trees and stepping inside you know, the trunk yeah because um cedars they go through a coring process. Once they reach about 80 years old, um, they start to produce an anti-rot hormone. Um, so as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, the young tree, the younger than 80 years old, doesn't have the hormone, so it rots from the inside out. Um, so almost every red cedar will be completely hollowed out in the center, and sometimes they'll open in the side. And I've I've stood inside like a 3000 year old tree before and you could lay like three people down in the middle of it. I've known people that have lived inside of these trees. Um, And when you find, they'll live for hundreds of years. Yeah. Rot is not dying. No. So the, um, the rot actually gives it more flexibility. So the theory is that um, because cedars, they grow really thick bases. um, If they didn't have that hollow center, it's theorized that they would topple a lot easier in the crazy storms because they wouldn't have the flexibility, but also, um, they would keep growing and growing and growing and never actually be able to fall 
because their bases are so thick. So it gives them the ability to stand for a lot longer, but it also eventually gives them a weakness that allows them to fall and become a nurse log and grow the next generation. Um, So like, yeah, cedars are such a huge part of the ecosystem in general. Um, But even when it comes to logging these old cedars, one of the reasons they're going after these old, old, old trees is because that anti-rot hormone that the cedars produce make it so that it'll take about half of their lifetime to decompose. So if you're harvesting like 200-year-old trees, they'll only their wood will only last naturally for about 80 years or so. If you're harvesting a tree that's a thousand years old or two thousand years old, that wood will last like five hundred to a thousand years naturally. Because of this hormone. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's one of the reasons why it's so valuable. Um, uh, there's lots of other reasons. But, I want to ask. Yeah. There's a complaint that was raised up uh, on Signal Chat and also in uh, my conversation with Marmar, uh, the complaint about the mismanagement of the forest while blockading. And it sounds so severe that you want to say it's so bad that we treat the land in, in that way that we prefer you go out from the land and even let Till Jones cut all the trees. And if from my white eyes perspective, it sounds like not something you can really compare taking all the trees or making a little bit of damage by disrespecting the land. So can you explain the feeling of disrespect and why it's so big or so big that you even say, some of you say, um, or prefer that the blockade was stopped to exist? Yeah, I I personally, I don't think it's really comparable um, because the loss or the mistreatment of these small second growth areas isn't is nothing in comparison to um, the loss of these ancient forests. Um, I think that there's been a lot of kind of misdirection around what land defenders have been doing in regards to like cutting down smaller trees and building structures on the land um, and Uh, creating whatever semi-permanent areas that were created when we were out there. Um, But ultimately, like these second growth forests, we're not too concerned about protecting Um, a lot of the damage that has been done to the land, to the soil, to those ecosystems has already you know, been carried out. Uh, some of the some of the forests out there have been logged two, three, four times already. Um, so there's really no recovering to the same degree in those areas. Whereas for the old growth forest, um, even just the mycelia networks in those forests, like the fungal networks, the connections of the trees, like those are the sorts of things that once they're damaged can never be repaired in the same way. Um, But it also, 
yeah like I, I I just don't think it's it's really comparable. comparable yeah do you see yourself as part of the land defenders that polluted the forest or there's a more would you say there are more white people and do you think you could have done better what would you do different uh, with taking care of the land and how big of an issue is it for you so I was at like one of the bigger camps um, for quite a while and we always had fairly good like garbage recycling compost management um, we had jobs um, that people would volunteer for to sort out recycling to clean recycling to do dishes um, and we had an area where we would have garbage and recycling and everything that needed to be taken out of camp so people coming in and out could um, help by removing any kind of waste in that way. Um, it was really important at a lot of our camp meetings to discuss the cleanliness of camp as well as to like bring up those little issues or instances of pollution that would be concerning so that we could address them straight away. Um, and that was usually just like, like well-meaning things that were just not very well thought out, like writing little notes on pieces of paper and hanging them in a tree. Um, and then, you know, that's something that I would go in and be like, no, this is very disrespectful to this like water source, to this area. Um, and then we just get a group together and we'd all go in and take everything down and clear everything out. Um, there were a lot of instances where the media, social media or, uh, you know, loggers or industry or police or whatever would take pictures of the aftermath of a camp um, usually post-arrest, um, post-raid, so after the RCMP have come in, removed people, gone through personal belongings, gone through living spaces, and just torn everything apart. Um, and they would take these pictures and say, like, look at what these so-called land defenders are doing to the land, like leaving garbage and, like, all this terrible stuff everywhere. Um, but most of the time those pictures were after the RCMP would come in and they would not allow us to return to take our personal belongings or to clean the camps. And there were many instances where um, land defenders and land protectors would actually disobey the exclusion lines or push past behind the RCMP just to clean up. Um, so they would risk arrest just to clean up the mess because at this point we knew that they were using these kinds of tactics on us, you know? Like, uh, yeah, there were a couple camps that they just completely shut access off to. Um, and and then they make a big stink about the mess. Um, but that was, you know, a big concern for us because that's why we're there. Um, 
So there were definitely times where I'm sure things could have been done better, but I think that for the most part, we're doing like the best that we can with the resources that we have and the access that we have, um, whether we have vehicles that are able to make it in and out of camps or whether there are even trails to get in and out of camps at certain times. So um, definitely a lot of variables, but it was always a big concern, um, especially you know, when we made it around to fire season and we were worrying about any kind of debris or litter or like glass or metal or anything that could create a reflection or um, a heat source or anything. Like we had all camps like tuned into that because we knew that if we had somebody come in and say that we were a fire hazard, that that could be the one thing that shut us down completely. Right. <laughs> you know, you say something very um, smart, I think, that in every big conflict, there is always more um, participant. And the other participants sometimes have the intention to keep the conflict going. So oh, it yeah. sounds like the police uh, and the media contributed to some of the things happening between the land protester. Oh yeah, definitely. And that that's very important to remember. That there's always more interests involved in in such uh, issues. Yeah. I think that that's why like one of the biggest issues uh that has led to these kinds of conflicts is just not having a really kind of like solid foundation um that everyone can agree on and i know that with this movement there have been like different iterations of code of conduct and um just like kind of vetting people before they come into the movement um for the sake of safe spaces and whatever uh but i think that a lot of that kind of stuff has just sort of fallen through the cracks um which has led to a lot of disconnect <laughs> okay i would like you to speak now about something that uh, came up in marmar's interview that i didn't fully understand and i find it contradict um that the indigenous protocol were not being respected uh, and one of the reasons is that um they didn't get permission from the nations However, Bill Jones is patchy that elder and he gave permission and he supports the movement. So please say something about that that we understand. As far as Bill Jones giving permission, um, that is in itself not in alignment with indigenous protocols. Um, I do believe that Bill Jones as an elder, um, as a respected elder in his community, um, you know, had the right and the ability and the protocol and know-how to be able to support this movement and lead it in the way that he has had to do. Um, but in regards to Indigenous protocol, it is not traditional 
to have a man in control like that. Um, it would be matriarchal led as it should be. Um, and that was one of the big issues out of the blockade as well, is there were a lot of indigenous femmes, like indigenous youth, um, who were uh, indigenous femmes, like femme presenting. Um, there are a lot of two spirit and queer people, um, but just like as far as indigenous law goes, that like femininity um, holds a certain level of respect in a matriarchal society. Um, but ultimately, a lot of the indigenous leadership were pushed out um, because of their voices being seen as aggressive. Let's just explain the protocols first and then go to the... Yeah, so traditionally, um, we would have more matriarchal leadership. And... It has to be from Pachidat, or it doesn't matter if it's like a Grand Malosha? And well, that is the other thing, is and... like... If with indigenous protocols, we would have a lot more focus on building relations with Pachidat and Dididat. And I think it's really important um, that Pachidat and Dididat would have a huge part in the leadership of anything going on on that land. Um, and there has been issues with elders from other nations um, outside of the Nuchalnuth nations coming and sharing teachings that are not from this land. Um, and the issue with that, the reason why that is so important to respecting indigenous protocols is because we as a people all across Turtle Island, all across this continent, um, are people that have this like really deep connection to the land that we live on. And our language is built around the land that we live on and how we exist on it and with it and how we understand it. And so when there are elders or teachings being brought from other lands, from other cultures onto this land, um, the reason it can be seen as disrespectful mm -hmm. is because it is teaching others who are not of this land how to respect the land in a language that this as Nuchalnuth land does not understand. Um, so like in my culture, we do a lot of like cedar brushing and, and like, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's not so much a focus on like sage burning or, you know, like sacred fires, even those sorts of things. Um, but there were a lot of teachings being shared in the movement that were not Nuchalnuth teachings. Um, and a lot of the protocols I think that were being perpetuated through the movement 
in regards to how to respect indigenous people and how to respect indigenous cultures, those protocols and teachings weren't necessarily coming from Nuchalnath people either. Um, and I think that one of the biggest testaments to this movement saying it's indigenous led, but not truly being indigenous led is that it's been active on the land for over a year. And we say that we have good relations with Pachidat and Dididat, but a handful of people supporting the movement um, is not the nation's support. And ultimately like that's what a land defense movement needs is the support of the indigenous nations surrounding uh, because that is the only way you can respectfully exist on that land. I'm sure there's want for that land to be protected and for that old growth to be protected. Um, but disrespecting um, the nation and being unable to have or maintain good relations with the nation is just like, it's not, not the way to do it. <laughs> it seems that respecting the land in a specific way, in a specific protocol, and which elder teaches what is very important to you uh, in the tradition. And I find it frustrating because you are so few in numbers and you need each other to work together and to, and to be strong and to fight colonialism and do everything you need to do. And, and those issues ingrained in the tradition prevent you from coming together. And I wonder what you can do to be able to work together as one nation. Well, it's, it's really hard. And like you said, these kinds of relationships and these this kind of respect takes time to build um and traditionally the way that that would have been done is through potluck um and that would have been something that would have been done to initiate something like this and to guide it and see it through and to finalize it you know to to lay it to rest um so this like tradition of potluck um we would have had everybody come into a space and share that space and share food and talk for days non-stop um and you know, I think that that sounds like a lot and it's it's a lot, especially considering like the, the pandemic times that we're living in, um, which is probably one of the reasons why it's never been really able to be done right. Um, when it comes to ego, like the biggest reason a lot of these conversations have not been able to take place is because of a lot of the trauma that exists um, just with 
the past on these lands and the relations between settler and indigenous peoples. Um, and it's almost a defense mechanism for, I think, a lot of BIPOC or indigenous people to be distrusting of white people. And like, as much as people want to say, like, reverse racism or whatever, like, the fact of the matter will always remain that racism is institutional and it doesn't work that way. But there is still, like, bias or prejudice um, or, or what it really comes down to, I think, is just unhealed trauma and the inability to kind of like trust in situations especially when you've been shown that it's not worth it so many times um but you mean not worth it not worth to heal the trauma not worth it like not worth wasting your time and energy trying to educate somebody um who is ultimately going to continue to uphold their like ignorant beliefs or or pretend that they understand you and not make any changes or what have you like there are a lot of settler supporters who are willing to learn and willing to listen um and there are a lot of indigenous people who have fought for change for so long and not been listened to and not seen the change happen and we're all very very tired uh just as much as having white abusers or male abusers people who have been accused of you know sexual assault or you know like that's that's something that is just so frustrating to talk about every time because it was a consistent issue that white men who were accused of sexual assault or just misconduct in regards to young femmes or young indigenous femmes um, were uh, allowed to feel comfortable returning to the movement by who by by bill jones by who by everyone that that was one of the things is like if you don't have community knowledge and community consensus on these sorts of things then the information doesn't get out people don't take it seriously Like uh, what I'm saying is it happens so many times that asking like who is making these people feel comfortable, it's everybody that is still there because they are still there and still no one has made them feel uncomfortable enough to leave. Um, As far as I understand, Flip-Flop and Gwen Melosha are responsible of the camps. An indigenous woman. Yeah. They let those white men feel comfortable Well, I agree. And so who make them feel comfortable if you are there and Marmar is there and well, I have personally 
been a part of asking these people to leave. I have personally been a part of removing these people from camp. I have held uh, talking circles to discuss people's behavior and discuss courses of action in removing people from certain positions of authority or holding power over certain things. Um, and it didn't work. These people, a lot of the time, have been involved in deeper aspects within the movement or within Rainforest Flying Squad from the beginning. Um, or these people have been seen as like valuable resources. Um, a lot of these people were media people. Um, and in a lot of the cases, it was like, they didn't understand why their behavior was problematic. So they didn't understand what they had done wrong. Um, and they believed that they were doing something good by being there um, for the trees, you know? Uh, and because they had a lot of friends and supporters standing up for them, um, you know, the usual thing like, oh, I'm sure it was a misunderstanding. They're a good person and, and that usual bullshit. How many people are we talking about? Um, let me see. People that had been asked to leave and returned and were allowed to remain a part of the movement um, I would say at least five, four or five. Um, all in all, the underlying issue of abusers um, was like it was it was it was a big thing. Um, Can you say what is allowed to return by who? When I say allowed to return, I mean, I don't think of, of these sorts of situations in like a hierarchical sense. I think of it as a broader community thing, a community concern. So when I say like they were allowed to return to camp, I mean that the community did not come together okay. to ensure that they were not allowed to return to camp. Um, like that was the biggest thing is like, Myself as an indigenous person out there um, and someone who had and wanted to have a voice, um, I saw a lot of people be deemed as problematic for pushing these issues of saying, this person was accused of being an abuser why are they still here? Who is allowing them to be here? Who, like, why have we not come together to force them out or to make them feel uncomfortable or like to just address their behavior mm -hmm. um, or confront them about their behavior? Like nothing is being done. 
And a lot of those voices, those indigenous voices who were really pushing for that, um, just weren't taken seriously, or it was like a constant fight for them um, to the point where I think that's why a lot of indigenous support has kind of like fled the movement um, is because there were these things that we kept pushing for change and like people kept saying like how can we get more indigenous support how can we fix this what can we do and it would it would be the same thing over and over again of like well here's the big list of things we've been saying over and over and over again um here's like number one remove all the white abusers that we have asked to be removed that are still taking part in the movement um and then we can talk and work on these relationships but like as much as people want to talk about wanting to fix things those changes never get made um and the more angry and the more frustrated indigenous people get within the movement the more angry and more frustrated our voices become and the less and less people are willing to listen to them. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's a cycle that's been repeating since the beginning. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's why I myself cannot be more involved than I am currently. Right. It sounds like there is missing a leadership there. Like nobody wants to take ownership and nobody is willing to take this responsibility on themselves. And I think that. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I think that that's been a big issue in a lot of different ways out there. Um, Even when we kind of had the stability and the opportunity to solidify certain roles within the movement and have some kind of system of leadership in place, um, people would solidify themselves in a role and then have to leave. And then that role would just be completely empty and they wouldn't have shared or taught anyone necessarily how to be a part of that or maintain it. Um, So that's been a consistent issue. And I think that that's, still a big issue when we talk about decentralized leadership um we like it it can work but not in the way that we've been doing it because it is just too sporadic and unpredictable and there's just not the level of communication and like level ground for everyone that we all need to be able to function in that space and unfortunately like I think this is the kind of thing that something like this needs to start with it needs that foundation because we've been trying to like build a skeleton for this movement while we're all just like floating around um and yeah I think that it's the kind of thing where we now have a community um, 
with all of these land defenders and everyone who's been a part of this movement and have helped build it and help sustain it, we have a community now where we could focus on building a really good foundation and building a really solid structure for us to move forwards with. But I think that as far as Fairy Creek goes, the longer it is out on the land, because it's been a year and relationships haven't been formed properly yet, I think that the longer they are out there on the land, the worse it is going to damage relations with the host nations. With and just with, yeah, Pashidat, Dididat, um, and just, there's a lot of people. Say more about yeah. that, because as far as I understand, there is no unity in the nations themselves. What's happening inside the nations right now? How they see the blockade, how they want to be part of that. What's the voices you, you hear over there? Yeah, well, a big part of it uh, is just like the usual kind of dispute between kind of like band office, band council, which would be like, colonial appointed power structures versus hereditary or traditional like power structures or just like recognizing that um and there's a disconnect within families um in Pachidot through that colonial and traditional disconnect um so families are not agreeing on certain things and ultimately um there's a lot of like money and power at play <laughs> when you do this gesture do you mean it's complicated well it is complicated right and and as it's it's not my nation it's not my band it's not something that i know a whole lot about it's just like I can speak very generally about that kind of um, discourse within like indigenous communities and and nations and uh, you know whatever kind of interpersonal political like terrain we are all a part of through that um, is there a protocol for indigenous people to come together is there a way that Pachidat and Dadidat would be united through an indigenous protocol? Uh, again, that would be a potlatch. So right. a big gathering of ceremony and gift giving and um, just like sharing culture and sharing traditions and sharing resources and wealth, you know? Um, and like I said, you know, that sort of thing would go for days. Um, they don't stop. They go nonstop for days. And it would be like elders um, discussing and talking uh, in front of their communities and sharing stories and sharing teachings, um, uh, initiating warriors or young people um and just like it, it's a huge celebration um and 
potlatch is a huge thing for so many of us indigenous cultures, um, which unfortunately has been taken away from us in so many ways in the past. And now again, because of COVID COVID and um, all the protocols around that and just community safety. Uh, So it's a big loss for us um, and it really does affect the way that we manage these relationships um, among nations. Uh, like even myself as an Achalmuth person trying to figure out how to gain support from my own nation um, has been an interesting thing because a lot of my elders are kind of living spread out and living very isolated just because of their age. So uh, it's uh, an interesting time to try and access certain cultural teachings right now. <laughs> so it, it sounds like there is no good way, there is no kind of straightforward way to, have, to build relationship right now. Like even if uh, there is like... A, RFS say yes, yes. Let's do that. Let's let's build relationship. There is no way to do that. Yeah, it would be smaller, uh, obviously, like smaller community members, and just like building those smaller connections within communities. Um, I think that a big resource even would be just connecting to some of the the youth and the the two-spirit people from the nations that have been out there um, and hearing from them who they see as trusted people within their communities um, or, you know, cultural figureheads within their communities to make those connections. Um, What is two-spirit? Two-spirit is like a an indigenous identity, meaning uh, someone who doesn't identify as like just male or female. So I guess like a different term would essentially be like non-binary, but two-spirit people in indigenous culture historically have held a lot of like respect and high regard as um, spiritual leaders or people who held important roles in these kinds of like interpersonal community situations. (laughs) Uh, I identify as two spirit. Um, I go by they, them or he, him pronouns. Um, And yeah, like there's a lot of two spirit people that get involved in land defense. And I think that kind of the act of decolonizing um it just gives two-spirit people there's there's a period of like reclamation of that like ancestral power that comes from like being two-spirit in land defense yeah <laughs> i want to ask you what at the stake for you what are you risking if um it won't work if they can save the trees or if the conflict keep persistent or what do you feel? Um, What's the worst uh, scenario for you? No well, it's really kind of hard to 
hard to grasp, um, hard to explain. I I was out in the the KQ's cut blocks before um, they were all logged down, and there was this ancient ancient tree there. And I mentioned like the spiritual connection and the spiritual power that these forests and these trees hold for us. Um, and I think that if those forests were to fall, it's not so much a personal loss that I feel. I mean, it is. It is a deep, deep personal loss, but it's also like it's a it's a huge loss to like the human experience. And it's it's like so profound. I can't explain it in any way that I feel would truly show the impact or share the impact, but like the removal of these forests, these ancient trees, those are like thousands of years old. To me, it feels like another genocide. It feels like the loss of a generation of ancestors, of grandparents of like of wisdom you know it, it feels like the burning of cathedrals and libraries and it feels like the loss of hope in some regards because how can we as human beings who like how can we as human beings have got to a place where we have lost so much of this connection to the natural world where we have become so disconnected from ourselves and from each other that we can look at something that is older than anything that we can fully comprehend. Like it's, it's older than anything that we have built and been a part of. And we as humans can sacrifice that, can cut it down, can like stand in the presence of something like that and feel like we have a right to end it for a momentary profit or a small industrial venture or something. Like that to me speaks volumes to our own lack of humanity within like the society and the culture that we have created um so do you feel disconnected from the society that that create this or do, do you do you find part of this in yourself too i uh, <laughs> i <don't>, like <laughs> i've always had this idea of becoming something outside of this society 
Um, when I think about creating a future for myself, it's not about being successful or profitable or wealthy in capitalism, in colonialism. When I think about like setting up my life, it is about becoming sustainable and abundant outside of this and being able to offer a different way of living to other people outside of this. Um, so I, I'm just finishing my second year of my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Critical and Cultural Practice, but I am taking a break from school um, because I want to focus on building some kind of like collective or co-op or nonprofit organization um, because as a Nuchalnath person, as an Indigenous person, I have claim to land. I have cultural connections through school. I have a lot of networking connections. I have access to a whole lot of money that is made available for community and cultural building projects. And I want to build something that I can support my people going forwards in these kinds of ventures with. Um, so like, I can't be a part of these this Fairy Creek blockade movement forever, and I don't think that it is in anybody's best interest for this movement to go on forever. No. <laughs> um, but I think that the community that come has come out of it has the potential to build something absolutely fantastic going forwards and something different that maybe people haven't seen before and that's what I want to get started on yeah yeah um Nas let's go back to the leadership issue in the movement if there's no one solid leadership who are the people that should be the one that uh, build relationship with the host nations yeah okay um well There's a lot of talk about how there's no leadership. Then there's a lot of weird conversation around Rainforest Flying Squad and whether or not it does or does not exist. Um, <laughs> but there have been the same people pretty consistently um, like holding some degree of leadership like or holding some degree of like authority in those roles like ultimately there's no there's no simple solution to any of these problems because all of these problems have been allowed to go on for too long um which is why the only thing in my opinion, is to respectfully remove from the land. And of course, like, you know, everyone's afraid of what's going to happen if the movement was to pull out, which is understandable. There's a lot at risk there. But... You're talking about cutting the trees? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In regards to, like, that, that risk. Um, but... The longer the movement goes on, there's more and more indigenous people being alienated. Um, 
so yeah, there's just been consistent problems with uh, media control as well. Um, but like one of the biggest issues with that kind of stuff is that there has been pushes to have more indigenous leadership um, because a lot of the indigenous youth um and especially like different indigenous youth from Dididat and Pachidat specifically had issues with um, different like indigenous leadership feeling like they were like there was a certain level of tokenization going on. Um, what is tokenization? Like tokenization being having like an indigenous person there for the sake of having an indigenous person there um i know i know i read about it yes okay yeah so like it's possible to have indigenous leadership and still have that indigenous leadership withholding colonial hierarchies or colonial ideas and mindsets um so like it is possible to have like indigenous people, indigenous people in leadership positions in this movement and still have them, you know, be problematic or be like, uh, what's the word? Like allowing these sorts of like, white supremacist colonial structures to be to like prevail or like be perpetuated in these spaces um and i also like there's been a lot of just like issues with people drinking out on the land as well and some indigenous people feel like it's not that big of an issue and other indigenous people see alcohol as being like real spiritual poison like a real like colonial control tactic um so yeah there's definitely a lot of interesting uh dynamics going on even within those circles right <laughs> So do, do you think if the money will be given now to Pachidat and Dadidat uh, nations, which is mean different elders, uh, would they yeah. protect the trees? Would they do anything possible to protect the trees? Well, I think uh, one of the best ideas that I've heard for the money is to create some sort of business with it. Um, so depending on if someone could actually organize something like that and propose something like that, um, there is, of course, potential for some kind of like ecotourism um, or like there's also been talk of the amount of money being raised being enough to, in theory, like, pay the nations for the land that has been given to teal jones or even like no buy no, no. some of the land or something but like not, not not really enough no but like having that kind of money put into something long term um 
is like the best course of action i think even just having a business put on one of the communities or both or starting a fund for an organization or a foundation or something like that um there's no way that this movement is going to succeed without the support of the Nishanath people and the way that it's going there's no way for it to recover from the damage that it's done to its indigenous supporters thus far regardless of who is still there and who is still supporting you're talking emotional um, damage yeah well yeah like emotional damage sure but like what kind of there thing? has been a lot of different kinds of damage you know there's been a lot of different kinds of trauma um you know relationships have been damaged family relationships um bodies have been damaged uh you know like people are needing a lot of healing from this uh but the movement's not going to succeed without the support it has lost so much support and it has done so little to gain support or heal relations i feel that at this point all focus needs to be on how to bring this to an end most respectfully with doing as little damage as possible considering how much damage has already been done and like it's winter time they're not going to be able to log the forest when it's snowing and hectic and crazy so now is the time to plan what we're going to do because right it's been like this disorganized chaos for so long um like it's really time to hunker down and think what can we do going forward it's not only to heal what needs to be healed but to learn from our mistakes and figure out the best way to go forwards and would would you say you're the voice of landback movement like are you united in your voices i think that well it depends like what you mean by land back like, are you able like you able to organize your people and come up with a plan to what need to go next and then present it in the next meeting yeah i i mean i am not planning with fairy creek or rfs or within that movement no um, in, with land back with your but, friend with your yeah. group of people can you organize yeah. them you know? yeah with my people uh and just like like the the plans that i've been putting together and the ideas that i've been putting out into the the community in my community of people um the reason why i'm dropping out of school to focus on this is because i do believe it is truly possible um and i have an idea of proposing like a two-year project plan um to build i have two two projects i want to do the first is a cultural center or a decolonizing center saying like this is 
the first of its kind that we're building. This is how much it's going to cost. Um, this is our plan for it. And this is like what we need from, you know, whatever crowdfunding or support or whatever, uh, doing like skill sharing, skill building so that all of the work that is going to go into this project can also be shared within the community and distributed within the community. Um, the other project that I want to do because I am Heshkwit and I have claim to unceded sovereign territory, uh, I want to go out to my traditional territory and build a longhouse um, and do a lot of like cultural learning and community work with that as well. Um, so that's all kind of under the umbrella of this organization that I want to put together with my community. So as it is, I have probably like 10 people who are committed to putting the work in and figuring this out and like committing to it as something that will be like a big part of our lives. Um, and then I just have like the much larger community of people who have different like skills, either like carpentry or, you know, like aqua culture or herbalism, like just all those sorts of skills that you'd need to live sustainably um, and independently. Uh, and just a huge community of people that are committed to figuring out a different way of living and a better way of living and doing this kind of community support. So I think that it's, it's totally possible and it's going to happen because I'm speaking it into existence. And the more people that I talk to about it, the bigger it grows. And there's so many people right now that are already living in a different way. Um, and like, we just don't want to work for anybody else anymore. We want to work for what we want to build. And I personally don't want to wait forever. I want to get going right now. That's really inspiring. I love it. And tell me, did you think to ask the funds to support your project? I don't know if it will be involved at all honestly um because getting access to the funds has always been like a real issue um and like i i think it, it kind of comes down to that same thing of like not having the leadership necessarily in the way that it needs to be there and so there's like a lot of disconnect um and it's been difficult to even really determine what the funds are okay to be used for and it's like at this point i have no idea what's going to happen with the funds that have been raised for this movement i know that there was a, a large set a large fund of money set aside for bipoc support for black and indigenous supporters of this movement but that fund has been shut down. Um, what do you mean? With the, with, like, n no one has access to those funds anymore with the intent of giving those funds to Pachidot and Dot, because whoever's managing the funds for RFS has 
not taken any action to do that in any like clear way as of yet. Um, okay, so if I understand you correctly, for you solving the conflict right away is get out of my land uh, peacefully, quietly, but as fast as you can. Winter is not time for logging anyway, so you don't you don't need to be here right now, and we don't want your money right now because it's too complicated. We don't need this headache. So let's finish it with all of this peacefully. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that a lot of indigenous people feel the same way. It's like it's not about the funds. The funds are just another ridiculous headache that has been created by the movement for the movement. Um, and I think that it would be great if they could like give it to the host nations as a show of respect as a show of like even apology in some way um but honestly if they're not gonna do it in a clean way then i think that it would probably just be like better not to have that responsibility dumped on someone without the organization of how to deal with it or like how it's been dealt with in the past which is why I think that building something with it is the best way because then you can just be like, I don't know, we, we didn't know what to do. So we built this for you and now we're just giving that to you instead. It's because... But then there will be voices that say, nobody asked them and now you do something well, for them. The and then thing. it's disrespectful. <laughs> right? Like the thing is this disorganization has been going on forever and we keep talking about how to fix it, but nothing changes. Nothing is changing. It just keeps going on and on and on. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And people are getting more and more bitter about it. Like tensions are growing the longer it goes on. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where like someone just needs to sit down and have like some uncomfortable, really long drawn out conversations with the right people and just come out of it and say like, okay, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're laying it to bed. <laughs> mm-hmm.